May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. As I mentioned last Sunday night, the lectionary has now launched us into a series of three mid-Lenten readings from the Gospel according to John. I also made the observation that one of the things that really characterizes John's telling of his story is his inclusion of long sections of dialogue. And here tonight, we've got just the tail end of Jesus' 21-verse exchange with the Pharisee Nicodemus. That a Pharisee, and one identified as a leader of the people, has come to speak with Jesus is itself a remarkable thing. Though, of course, John notes that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night or under the cover of darkness. Spin the story ahead to chapter 7, verse 50, and we find that Nicodemus is very much a member of the inner circle of authority, one who had much to lose if it was thought that he was sympathetic to this Galilean teacher. Yet, as is so characteristic of John's writing, coming by night signals more than just coming in secrecy, you know, hoping that nobody sees him, not wanting to get caught. Nicodemus is also coming from a place of metaphorical night blindness. And the whole of this exchange has Jesus offering up a series of challenges telling Nicodemus that he must be born again, for instance, and Nicodemus utterly missing the point. He's blind. Well, by the time today's reading picks up in the conversation, Nicodemus has basically given up speaking altogether. But still, I think it's important to remember that these verses we just heard read aloud are part of a longer conversation. I wonder... How many of us here memorized John 3.16 somewhere along the line? Lots. I certainly did, both in my Sunday school class and then again as part of a required preparation to work at a summer camp. It's the verse that Martin Luther called the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. And as any highway traveler will tell you, It has made its way onto countless billboards across the continent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. As a standalone verse, it does its own particular work. But I've sometimes thought that it might have been good to have been required to memorize the next verse as well, John 3.17. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But even that, even to have John 3, 16 and 17 together, doesn't do justice to the whole passage we just read, to the, to the kind of the tail end of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I mean, I think it's important to have this sense that the Son is given in order that the world might be saved through him, to affirm the truth that it is God's desire to bring the whole works home. But 
Jesus doesn't stop there. He moves from speaking of the whole world being saved to saying that, quote, those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And it doesn't even stop there. And this is the judgment, he says, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Now, just a kind of a, a little parenthesis here. Remember, all of this talk about light and dark is being spoken to a Pharisee who has come to him under the cover of the dark of the night. That's interesting. Still, it, it all seems incredibly us and them, insiders and outsiders, the included and the excluded, which for this preacher anyway causes a certain amount of discomfort. I mean, give me the prodigal son or the parable of the lost sheep any day. But this? And it's a way of thinking that has sometimes been malformed into incredibly judgmental and damaging theologies of raw condemnation. Churches have sometimes configured themselves around systems for determining who is in and who's out. As if we could see the true light with such clarity so as to then be in a place of declaring when somebody else is not in the light. And yet, we can't, I can't, decide to stop reading at John 3.17 in order to keep things in my comfort zone. That's not on. In a wonderful essay entitled The Johannine World for Preachers, the Catholic biblical scholar Raymond Brown advises the preacher to, quote, not domesticate John's Jesus. It is his style, Brown continues, to say things that border on the offensive. By all means, wrestle with such verses. Ask yourself and your hearers what Jesus can possibly mean by such words. Be puzzled, even offended. But do not silence Jesus by deciding what he should not have said and what your hearers should not hear. The other thing that Brown says is that whenever we run into these dialogues, we're to stand as part of them, which I think is wise. We're to stand with Nicodemus and to be engaged in this challenging conversation he has with Jesus. That, frankly, is the point, the whole point of these long dialogues in John's Gospel, that we as the readers or the hearers are also caught up in that back-and-forth exchange. What did Jesus mean by these words is only part of the equation. What does he mean? What is he saying is the crucial next step.
If he is the light that has come into the world, and if those who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, as he says, our response should not be to point out those who are obviously fleeing from the light, those others, but rather, like Nicodemus had to do, to look at our own lives and ask that question about our own selves. And with that in view, let me quote again from Raymond Brown's Reflections. He says, For the evangelist John, Jesus is not the founder of Christianity who lived way back then. Jesus is alive and well, giving life to every branch on the vine, calling his sheep by name and expecting them, us, to recognize his voice. He knows those who believe in him, and he loves them. And he expects love in return, not faith alone. Did you hear that? He expects love in return, not faith alone. The sophisticated preacher who has written off, Jesus loves me, as appropriate to that other style of Christianity, is not going to do justice to John, says Brown. At least on his good days, the devout Pharisee Nicodemus would have been pretty clear that he was living according to the light of the law. That would have been his own assessment of himself. He was doing it right. And the Torah is considered light. And while Jesus is singularly disinterested in condemning Nicodemus, he is quite ready to challenge his assumptions, those very assumptions, even to leave him troubled as he makes his way back out into the dark of the night at the end of a conversation he can no longer engage. But this hardball approach that Jesus takes is ultimately one of love, not of exclusion or condemnation. Jesus presses Nicodemus that hard precisely because he loves him. And he presses us with these texts for the same reason. I mean, it's true. The Son came into the world, not that the world would be condemned, but that it would be saved through him. That's why he presses us so hard. I said that in the seventh chapter of John, it becomes clear that Nicodemus moves in the inner circles of power. But what I didn't mention was anything of how Nicodemus is shown as acting in those circles in that chapter. By that point in the gospel, the opposition to Jesus had really begun to build. And it's apparent that those in authority are going to do all they can to stop him. It's at this point that Nicodemus rather pointedly asks, Our law does not judge people without first giving them a hearing to find out what they're doing, does it? To which the others reply, and you can hear the scorn, Surely you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search, and you'll see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. 
Well, Nicodemus may not be from Galilee, but his assumptions have been shaken by the Galilean to the point where he's prepared to try to have his world make room for Jesus, perhaps even to try to keep him safe by asking his question, our law doesn't condemn without looking into it, does it? His efforts are obviously rebuffed by others in his circle, by others still very much caught in their own night blindness. But it would seem that Nicodemus' eyes are beginning to come open. He appears in John's narrative one more time. This time in the company of Joseph of Arimathea at the end, in claiming the body of Jesus after the crucifixion and attending to the burial. It would seem that in the end, Nicodemus found he was truly free, finally, of his night blindness, able to come right out into the light and to go public regarding his respect for the Galilean, no longer caring who saw him do what. Because on that night near the beginning of John's gospel, he'd stood in the light, been rattled and challenged and even silenced in the light. He was not about to disappear back into the shadowy cover of the darkness, not at the end. And even if on that crucifixion day, it would have seemed as if it had all come to an end, It had all been for naught. Nicodemus was finally on his way home, his head up and his eyes open. Amen.